0: Hi guys! Hello everybody on Spotify or any other audio platform. This episode of Cassidy is Alive The Simpsons Part 1 is better watched on YouTube. I put in a lot of effort to video editing and it watches better as kind of a documentary. Still, if you prefer to listen to it through whichever service you're using, feel free. But Cassidy does strongly recommend heading over to YouTube and watching the contents. Enjoy the show. This is Cassidy and you are watching or listening to Cassidy is Alive episode 26 and it is this week my friends that we are beginning our dive into The Simpsons and we're just gonna get straight into it without any delay. Never mind my week though I do hope that you enjoyed yours. My friends, Here is a neat little overlay, and here we go. This is The Simpsons, part one, the epic rise of Homer J. Simpson. It's difficult to picture modern media without the influence of The Simpsons. For over 30 years now, this animated sitcom has been a mainstay on television screens around the entire world, growing to be a cultural cornerstone in its ascent to media kingpin. During its time, The Simpsons has appealed to a wide range of demographics. It has attracted fans from various countries and generational age groups. To mention one very specific demographic, Australia's Generation Y. Millennials, if you will. We grew up with peak Simpsons, often cited as Seasons 2 through 8. And it would air in the form of reruns at 6pm every night on network TV for thereabouts 15 years. To my generation... The Simpsons is deeply ingrained in popular culture. It's a piece of who we are as people. And for this retrospective and history of, I want you to bear that in mind. Because that is the angle from which I will be approaching this. As of June 1st, 2021, The Simpsons has run for 32 seasons boasting an insane over 700 episodes. And outside of the most diehard fans, general consensus says that less than one-third of them are actually any good. Shit happened along the way, and a once-great show kind of sucks now. Though, it continues to make money despite a substantial drop in quality. Still, there is something timeless about those early seasons, with so many fantastic episodes that modern contemporaries really still struggle to hold a candle to. So before we can discuss the decline, we have to discuss the rise. But even the rise is a little too early to begin the story. First off, I'd like to know where The Simpsons came from, who created it, how, and most importantly, why. The man who had created The Simpsons was Matt Groening. He was the middle child of five, born to Mother Margaret and Father Homer on February 15th, 1954, in the American state of Oregon. Homer Groening was a filmmaker and a cartoonist. This would likely influence a young Matt to take an early interest in such creative arts. Matt Groening grew up and attended school in the city of Portland. He graduated as an honor student from Lincoln High School, decades later describing his early years of education as, quote, simple. Groening has been described as a bright and capable student, one who would attain high grades while expending little efforts. His favorite classes in high school were English and graphic arts. Matt Groening entered tertiary education with an interest in journalism and authorship. At this point in his life, Matt was a big fan of American author Joseph Heller, His famous 1961 novel Catch-22, a satire on the bureaucracy of war, had inspired Matt to pursue writing as a profession. He moved to the nearby state of Washington, where he entered Liberal Arts University, the Evergreen State College in the city of Olympia. Here, Matt Groening would serve as editor of the campus newspaper, the Cooper Point Journal. For which he would also write articles and draw crude cartoons. To start, more effort was put into Matt's written articles, though over time he would take more interest in his drawings, and they would thus grow more prevalent within the Kuba Point journal.
1: Not so much as one blooming footprint. And we've been up and down every blinking road in the old county. We are flows stiff. We're giving up. Oh, no, you don't.
0: At some point during his college years, Matt Groening watched Disney's 101 Dalmatians. It was after seeing this animated film that he would begin to take cartoons more seriously as a career option. Graining began to consider the prospect of authoring a comic strip similar to the popular Peanuts comics by Charles M. Schulz, A way that he might combine his passion and talent for both cartoons and writing, Matt Groening now considered himself a writer-slash-cartoonist. Graining's newfound pursuit of comics led him to meet a woman named Linda Barry a fellow young cartoonist whom he befriended. The two shared a close personal and professional relationship, Graining learning much about the world of modern cartoons from this friendship. He has referred to Linda Barry as his biggest influence as a cartoonist, developing his own aesthetic directly from what he liked about hers. Comic strips that Graining created years and years later would pay homage to Linda Barry. He frequently used her exact panel structures, and Groening, he would continue to do this for as long as he published comics. I didn't actually pull the date, but I believe that that may have been in 2012, was when he finally stopped publishing comics. So yeah, a very long time. Other influences uh, cited by Matt Groening include the work of Monty Python, mid 20th century comic strips such as the aforementioned Peanuts and in particular an anthropomorphic cat character known as Felix the Cat. This character created by Pat Sullivan and Otto Mesmer was very popular in the 20th century. He appeared in comics, he appeared in films and a 1953 television show. Matt Groening, he loves the Felix the Cat animated show. It
1: was in 1977.
0: At the age of 23, when Matt Groening moved to Los Angeles, California, to pursue his future career. His primary goal was professional writing. While he was passionate about cartoons, and he did have talent, Groening felt that his real talent was in writing. And he was already taking a huge risk moving to LA. So he decided to take the safer option in pursuit of future work. The Los Angeles, Matt Groening found was a life in hell. In just his first year in LA, Matt had taken a series of self-described lousy jobs. These included things like dishwashing, landscaping, and chauffeuring. He'd even work a short time as a ghostwriter for an unnamed retired director. Eventually, Graining settled into a mundane role as a record store clerk at a shop on Sunset Boulevard. So, this must be the American dream. It had been a year of dead-end, underpaying jobs. A year of professional procrastination. Los Angeles was unlike Washington. And it was unlike home in Portland, Oregon. The real world and growing up was unlike high school. It was unlike college. And it was most certainly unlike cartoons. Matt Groening, now in his early mid-twenties, needed a way to communicate his angst. And to alleviate his frustrations. And he would quickly find one through arts. Struggling with feelings of discontent, a 24-year-old disenfranchised Matt Groening contextualized living life in Los Angeles through a satirical magazine of his own creation, aptly titled Life in Hell. The magazine featured articles and cartoons by Groening, photo collages, and the titular comic strip Life in Hell. This was a black comedy comic, and it follows Binky, a strung-out anthropomorphic rabbit stuck at a dead-end job. Its characters were drawn in a rough, crude style that has since become associated with Matt Groening as a cartoonist. Life in Hell also serves as a glimpse at the formative years and refinement of Groening's style of comedy. A lampoon, and a critique of American culture, as well as the hilarity of what we'd consider a mundane situation. While it's certainly different too, and much darker than The Simpsons, the influence that one had on the other is almost instantly apparent, and anybody familiar with The Simpsons would most likely recognize Life in Hell as a product of the same artist. The Life in Hell magazine was originally made in 1978. Groening would photocopy his original and then send those copies to his friends, and he sold any leftovers for $2 each at the record store in which he worked. It's not very relevant, but a little factoid that I personally love is that Matt Groening originally placed these mags in the punk rock section of the record store. Awesome. Life in Hell quickly became popular in the LA underground scene. The comic strip specifically was syndicated by alternative newspapers and magazines. Such publications as WETS. And perhaps most famously... The Los Angeles Reader. Life in Hell has been described as Matt Groening, pure and simple. And in pure and simple words, Matt Groening was a young American with a counterculture mindset. Life in Hell had no contemporary. Not really. It appealed to disenfranchised youth in the same way as certain styles of music. In what was now the 1980s, television was dominated by the family sitcom. Loving families, functional people, idealized Americana of yesteryear. This was not really what the maturing Generation X was. So in 1985 when Life in Hell found its way to the desk of Hollywood producer James L. Brooks. He saw an opportunity to cater to and speak to a neglected, steadily growing niche.
2: I came came to 20th Century Fox Mm -hmm. to do movies and then they started a network and they asked me to do a show as part of their starting what became the Fox Network. And this was a time when when 20th Century Fox was in shaky financial trouble, when the, the network took a while. as I think they were sort of on the verge of going under several times. And in that environment, somebody made me aware of Tracy Ullman, and we did a sort of loose, crazy, nobody was watching it um, with this wildly talented woman on television, and we thought that, you know, these bumpers you have before you go to commercial, that we'd make them little entertainment pieces, and we'd do these 30-second animated pieces. And uh, I knew of Matt Groening's Life in Hell, and I asked him to come in and do one, not to, and, you know. And it was just for the network nobody ever heard of, for this <laughs> thing that very few people would watch. And, um, and he came in and sat in the building we're in now, and in the outer office, as a bolt from God, sort of drew what became of The Simpsons. Wow!
0: In that same year... Of nineteen eighty five, Brooks contacted Graining to arrange a meeting. It was his intention to come at the young cartoonist with a preposition. He wanted to adapt Life in Hell into a series of animated shots. A quick note before we continue. The Fox Network. While it's largely considered a boomers network today, Fox was specifically targeted at the 18 to 49 demographic at this point in time, 1985. It was arguably the first channel on network TV that targeted Generation X. James L. Brooks was a producer for this newfound Fox network, and he's offered a Mac greening concerned a new program that was in production for Fox a sketch comedy-slash-musical program starring comedian Tracy Ullman, uncreatively titled The Tracy Ullman Show. Graining's shorts would air as buffers between segments and leading into commercial break. Groening was interested in Brooke's offer, but he was also weary of relinquishing ownership rights of his characters to the Fox network. So, Matt Craning created a new family of characters. The now famous Simpsons family. Craning named his new characters after his own family. A father named Homer. A mother named Marge. And younger sisters, Lisa and Maggie. He chose to not name the boy of the family after himself, nor his older brother Mark. Instead, envisioning the character as a mischievous troublemaker, he chose Bart. Bart being an anagram of the word brat. Craning claims to have conceived the family on a whim while he was waiting in the lobby at Brooks' office. Though, there are conflicting reports on this. Either way, James L. Brooks liked what he was presented, and a long-time professional friendship was formed. Come on, Bart,
3: leap into your father's arms! Come on, just like the old days. I'm too big now, Dad. There's no way. Come on, boy, leap! Do it, Ada boy! Come on, Bart. <laughs> you call that a leap?
0: Beginning April nineteenth, nineteen eighty-seven a series of Simpsons shots would air on The Tracy Ullman Show, lasting a tenure of two years. They began accompanied by different animated shots by other cartoonists, though The Simpsons is the only one that ever really caught on with viewers. This primitive version of The Simpsons has been noted for its crude, almost amateur visual design. Graining presented animators with rough sketches expecting them to be cleaned up. The animators, however, simply traced over the sketches. The subpar quality of art would go on to be referenced in episodes of The Simpsons for many years as an infrequently reoccurring joke.
3: Tracy Ullman was entertaining America with songs, sketches, and crudely drawn filler material.
0: The Simpsons shorts rose in popularity quicker than life in hell had said to have grown more popular in their first year than the Tracy Ullman show itself. American audiences found themselves attracted to its dysfunctional namesake family. They were a simple parody of the sitcom family, but they also held the ideals of the preceding generation up to scrutiny. And The Simpsons did this by presenting a realistic portrayal of the American nuclear family. what's and all. Ironically, this realism came in the form of a cartoon. Towards the end of its run, the Almond Show staff had grown resentful of the more popular Simpsons shots. And they would allegedly file an internal complaint with Fox. Further claims alleged that the complaint Had been signed by Tracy Ullman herself. Whether or not that story is true, James Albrooks and Matt Groening could certainly see the proverbial writing on the wall, and so they decided that they would explore different options.
1: Let's do it Homer! Yeah, let's blow this pop stand and never look back! Whatever doesn't kill me can only make me stronger!
3: It's not that simple. I've got to convince my supervisor to give me a leave of absence. Sure, what would you like? Four years? Five years?
0: The exact story of how The Simpsons became a full-fledged television show is up for debate. It has more or less being mythologized. Those involved tend to have similar, but not identical stories. The story, as told by James L. Brooks, seems to be the most reputable. And coincidentally the most entertaining. Brooks was at a Christmas party in 1988 when he was approached by a drunken Fox coworker named David Silverman. Silverman expressed his love of the Simpsons and his adoration of both Brooks and Groening. He spoke emotionally as he proposed to Brooks his idea ...of The Simpsons as a half-hour television program, making specific note that it would revolutionize the animation industry. Brooks was amused by this interaction, but nonetheless, he was intrigued by Silverman's idea. Upon proposing the idea to Matt Groening, Brooks was met with enthusiasm. The Fox Network, however required more convincing. Animated sitcoms were uncommon, and even in their heyday, shows like The Flintstones were predominantly targeted at children. A show like The Simpsons could retain viewer attention in the form of shots, but Fox were wary if it could do the same thing in half-hour blocks. Though, after a short battle, pack and forth between network and producer, Fox agreed to a 13-episode season run. And it would begin on December 17th, 1989.
2: Before, my fans had to be able to read to enjoy my comics, and now they can just turn on a knob and and enjoy my cartoons uh, with The Simpsons. So, uh... It's a a slightly wider-ranging audience. I have three-year-olds tugging at my uh, pant leg for autographs.
0: Production on season one of The Simpsons was handled by three executive producers. Matt Groening, James L. Brooks, and a man by the name of Sam Simon. Simon was a writer-slash-producer with whom Brooks had worked in the past. He was pivotal to the early years of The Simpsons. Sam Simon was responsible for assembling the show's initial team of writers, and along with Graining, led them in scripting each episode. Sam Simon has described the creation of The Simpsons as his opportunity to remedy the formulaic Saturday morning slump that was the animation industry of the time. Not dissimilar to Matt Graining, whose vision for the show was to offer an alternative to what he described as mainstream trash of the day. Simon and Groening made for a good creative duo. Their differing approaches to comedy proved to be quite compatible. Groening had his trademark parody and black comedy, while Sam Simon favoured character, jokes and gags that would develop over the course of the episode, as opposed to a string of jokes seen in contemporary sitcoms. He also took a three-dimensional approach to the returning voice cast, directing them to record ensemble scenes together in a studio which would give The Simpsons an authentic quality that had rarely, if ever, been seen in American cartoons up to that point in history. The series was originally set to debut in fall of 1989 though this was pushed back, as the pilot episode Some Enchanted Evening had very poor animation quality. The episode was reanimated, and The Simpsons would instead debut in December with a Christmas special entitled The Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire. No time to be careful. We're late. The pilot episode of The Simpsons, written by Mimi Pond and directed by an assumably sober David Silverman, aired first on December 17th, 1989, just at the dawn of a decade that would arguably be defined by what the program would go on to become. It follows the misfortunate circumstance met by the Simpsons family during the holiday season. Simpsons Roasting opens with the family attending a Christmas pageant at the Springfield Elementary School. Here we see Bart get ejected from the stage for singing a parody version of Jingle Bells, while Lisa performs a traditional dance from what they called the South Seas. In one single scene, the key character traits of the two eldest Simpson children are firmly established. Bart is a troublemaker and Lisa is a cultured nerd. The following scene is at the Simpsons family home where Bart and Lisa present Marge with their Christmas wish lists for Santa Claus. Notably, Bart wants a tattoo for Christmas which Homer and Marge obviously forbid. Although, on what I can only assume was the following afternoon, Bart sneaks away from Marge while Christmas shopping at Springfield Mall, and he finds his way into a tattoo parlor. With astonishingly little effort, he convinces the owner that he is 21 years old, and Bart begins to receive a tattoo. He is found by Marge before the tattoo is complete, and she promptly drags him to a dermatologist, where the entire Simpsons family holiday budget is spent on Bart's tattoo removal procedure. Meanwhile, Homer is at work at the Springfield Nuclear Power Plant. His boss... Mr. Burns comes over the loudspeaker with an announcement. Power plant employees would not be receiving a Christmas bonus this year, leaving the Simpsons with no money to spend during the holidays. The episode's conflict deepens when Homer learns that Marge had spent all of the Christmas money to remove Bart's tattoo. Homer then decides to lie He doesn't tell his family about his lack of annual Christmas bonus. But he swears to himself that he would provide for them this year any way he can. And this is beautifully juxtaposed by the neighbors. The ones that live next door. The Flanders family. Now at this point, the Flanders family were characterized a little bit differently to how they would be in the more memorable seasons. They were the ideal American family, well-to-do, church-going, with well-mannered kids. Ned Flanders was Homer's foil. In many ways, he was the indirect antagonist of the series. The Flanders earned Homer's ire through their contrast to his own dysfunctional family, a trait that would more or less define Homer as a character in these early years of the show. The remainder of Simpsons roasting on an open fire follows Homer moonlighting as a mole sansa for extra holiday cash. He is eventually uncovered by Bart, whom Homer confesses his predicament to. Expecting shame, Homer is taken aback when Bart encourages Homer's efforts to provide for his family. Compassion. As it turns out, though, the Santa gig paid quite low after tax deductions. And on Christmas Eve, Homer receives a check for a measly 50 Hey,
1: wait a minute. That's right. $120 gross. Less Social Security, less yes, unemployment insurance, less Santa training, Santa less King. costume purchase, wait less a minute. beard rental, less Christmas but, club. But... See you next year.
0: Oh. Willing to gamble his pay in the hopes of winning more Christmas money, Homer takes Bart to the Springfield Downs racetrack to bet on Greyhounds. Homer hears the name of one particular Greyhound. Santa's Little Helper. Homer takes this as a sign from God and bets his $50 on the dog. This dog, Santa's Little Helper, was a long shot, carrying 99 to 1 odds. Homer reasons that it will earn him more money because the odds are greater, thus the winnings are greater. Unexpectedly, Santa's Little Helper finishes dead last. As they leave the tracks, Homer and Bart witness the dog being abandoned by its owner for losing yet another race. They decide to take in Santa's little helper as a pet, and the very first episode of The Simpsons ends on a high, as the Simpsons family celebrates Christmas with their new family dog named Santa's little helper. The Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire was received quite well by critics, audiences, and importantly, Fox executives. It was viewed in over 13 million American homes at the time of its initial airing, even being nominated for two primetime Emmys in 1990. The first season continued to consistently high ratings and acclaim. Notably, Episodes were of a varying degree of animation polish during Season 1, though it proved to not be a factor in the growing popularity of The Simpsons. Of the 13 episodes, several highlighted the character of Bart, the series' main focus at the beginning. Along with less memorable episodes such as Bart the Genius and The Crepes of Wrath, among these was the Telltale Head, an episode taking its name from Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. In this famous story, Bart steals the head from a statue of town founder Jebediah Springfield. Facing the outrage of townsfolk and a guilty conscience, Bart solidifies his good nature and with an apology returns the head to the statue. Season one also has a Lisa-centric episode, more than one Homer episode, some showcasing family dynamics and family dysfunction, and there's even a Marge story that definitely fails the Bechdel test. And then there is what is probably my favorite season one Episode.
3: The Springfield SWAT team apprehended the TV clown who appears on a rival station opposite our own Emmy Award-winning Hobo Hank. And just in, actual footage of the crime taken with a quickie-marked security camera. The reason I look unhappy is that tonight I have to see a slideshow starring my wife's sisters. Or as I call them, the (laughs) gruesome-toosome.
0: Season one takes some time to develop Springfield's other inhabitants. The side characters. An early season episode introduces us to local bully Nelson Muntz. And while later seasons offer far more developments of Greater Springfield, a particular season one episode entitled Krusty Gets Busted explores the characters of Krusty the Clown and Sideshow Bob in a fantastic way. This is the best episode of The Simpsons season one.
1: Thanks, Krusty. Buy my cereal. <laughs> Buy my cereal. <laughs> I didn't do it.
0: Well, I wish I could believe you. While a solid half of the first season was thematically mature, the episodes centering around bots tended to be a little more childlike. Somewhat reminiscent of contemporary children's cartoons. But this would all change with the debut of season two and his premiere episode, Bart Gets an F. This episode drew what would be Fox's highest overnight rating up to that point in the network's history, and it is to this day still one of the highest rated episodes. Of anything on the Fox network ever. It follows Bart failing school and faced with the possibility of repeating the fourth grade as he attempts to improve and pass the year. It's an emotionally resonant and mature exploration of these real topics while still remaining funny throughout its runtime. Animation. ...is more polished than it had been at any point throughout season one. And we also get to learn about series mainstay characters... ...like Martin Prince and Miss Krabappel. Bart Gets Enough, in many ways, was a watershed moment... ...for The Simpsons as a TV show. And that makes sense, you know... ...given it came from what I believe to be... ...the watershed season... Of the Simpsons. Season 2 was still grounded in reality like the first, but it did take more risks, placing the Simpsons family in a few more unique situations. Along the way we see more of, or are outright introduced, to quite a number of side characters that will populate Springfield over the decades that follow We also had some of my most adored episodes in season two. Stuff like Dance and Homer and the very first Treehouse of Horror Halloween special. Along with that, season two had some really touching moments. Prime example, the final minutes of fan favorite episode, Lisa's Substitutes. The Simpsons also won its first Emmy during season two, being awarded the Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Animated Program for the first episode sorry, for the episode Homer vs. Lisa and the Eighth Commandments. A somewhat controversial episode poking fun at religious traditions. The Simpsons only rose in popularity throughout season two, as viewers around the world eagerly awaited each weekly installment of their new favorite sitcom family. However, not everybody was a fan.
2: We are going to keep on trying to strengthen the American family to make American families a lot more like the Waltons and a lot less like the Simpsons.
0: While the Simpsons had received criticism from the very beginning, as the family's star rose, its critics only grew louder and greater in number. Bart Simpson was criticized as being a poor role model for young children. The accusations were that Bart often faced no consequence for his misbehavior, a critique that is mostly cited to have come from parents of young children themselves, where you'd expect. Ignoring that Bart would indeed frequently face consequence, it is understandable how a mischief-maker like Bart Simpson might rub parents the wrong way. After all, children are easily impressionable. The controversy was best summarized by journalist Robert Bianco in a column published in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Bianco wrote of Bart, he outwits his parents and out-talks his teachers. In short, he's the child we wish we'd been and fear our child will become. James L. Brooks responded to the conversation concerning Bart with an insightful quote of his own. He said, quote, You don't run across many role models in real life. Why should television be full of them. Perhaps the harshest critic of the Simpsons was then United States President George H. W. Bush. He mentioned the show in a speech during his 1992 re-election campaign. The Republican candidate said the now infamous line, We are going to keep on trying to strengthen the American family. To make American families a lot more like the Waltons, and a lot less like the Simpsons. While I can't comment on former President Bush's attempt to strengthen the American family, one thing that undeniably grew stronger was the appeal of the Simpsons. The controversies surrounding the show, lo and behold, only helped it to become more popular. The Simpsons was the program that your parents hated. It was what the older generation did not want to understand. And in the midst of it all, The Simpsons had created its own counterculture icon. Cliffhanger. Just who could this counterculture icon be? Who? is this yellow-skinned, likely spiky-haired young lad. (laughs) We'll find out in a little while. For the moment, though, it is time for the Song of the Week. This week, we are going to be listening to just a little bit of a song known as Do The Bartman. This was released on the 1990 novelty album, The Simpsons Sing the Blues. It's performed by Nancy Cartwright and the rest of The Simpsons cast, with additional vocals and production by none other than Michael Jackson. Back with chapter four of this story in just a little while.
1: Double banana peels all over the floor.
3: Hey there, boy. Mom took the girls to the ballet tonight, so it's just you and me, kid. Uh,
1: sure, Dad. So
3: set up the TV trays and let's get started. You want the frozen fish nuggets or the
1: pork-a-roni? Well, it's a toss-up, Dad. I got an idea.
3: Let's mix them together smorgasbord style. <laughs> Voila! Fish porkaroni. a la Simpson. Uh,
1: Dad, would it be too late for me to catch a bus to the ballet? Where'd he go? Bart! 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 Bart Bart! Bart! Here I am. Eat. <laughs> Yuck, tastes like dog food. Bart! Does eating dog food turn you into a dog? Bart! Well, that answers that question.
3: You're not touching your fish, pork, nuggets a boy. Whoops. Dropped my fork. <laughs> Finished already?
1: Mmm. Lick the plate clean. Good,
3: cause there's plenty more where that came from. Mm-hmm.
1: We're home! The ballet was divine. Oh, it was just a... What's that smell? Oh, look at that. Our own two husky men snuggled together on the couch. All right, all right. Pass that
3: bucket of fish pork and nuggets aroney this
1: way. Come on, man. No nuggified fish porklets. Oh. Isn't no. that sweet? She knew the signs, but didn't think to read them. He knew she was aware of her own unawareness. Then, a fleeting glimpse, and she realized for every idiot, there is a compulsion.
3: <laughs> Nothing like a good belly flap. Oh, no, Homer. <laughs>
1: Nouveau postmodern comedy for the masses The Simpsons. <laughs> 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 Oh, it's a ですね。ミスタースパカルノー
2: They're the moments we'll always remember. You're all clear, kid.
1: Now let's blow this thing and go home. No problemo, man.
2: I can't swim.
1: What are you crazy? The fall will probably kill you. Ooh, good point. <laughs> <laughs> Americans love an underachiever. Watch the epic grandeur of an unforgettable classic. Uh. Or watch The Simpsons.
0: By the early 1990s, Bart Simpson had become one of the most popular characters on television. His immense popularity was termed Bart-mania, a reference to what was called Beatlemania, and the comparably quick sense of the Beatles in the 1960s. In the early seasons, Bart was the de facto protagonist of the Simpson family. ...often the most heavily promoted character, finding himself appearing in advertisements even for episodes in which he was barely involved in the main plots. He was also insanely marketable. I mean, the sheer amount of Bart Simpson merchandise in the early 1990s is astounding. We're talking millions upon fucking millions of Bart Simpson t-shirts being sold internationally. Two of the most popular bore the slogans, underachiever and proud of it, and an old Bart catchphrase, I'm Bart Simpson, who the hell are you? Both of these t-shirts were famously banned from schools across the United States of America. In the first 14 months, The Simpsons merch generated over 2 billion USD, and the brand had become among the most profitable in the world, with Bart Simpson as the face of all of that. Bart was considered the brightest new star on television, and some critics would describe the boy as the new. King of TV, there was, however, already a king of TV.
1: <laughs>
0: Fame Day Rapist Bill Cosby had long time been considered America's so called TV Dad. His sitcom, NBC's The Cosby Show, was the most popular television show at the time. Without question, Bill Cosby was the king of TV at the dawn of the 1990s. Due to the popularity boom of The Simpsons, Fox made the decision in the summer of 1990 to move The Simpsons to Thursdays at 8pm where it would enter direct competition with The Cosby Show. What followed was a ratings war between America's two most popular sitcoms, of which the media dubbed the Bart versus Bill rivalry. There was no grand resolution to this rivalry, unfortunately. The Cosby Show kind of ended, and The Simpsons, regrettably, Continued on and on and on. That's really all that can be said of that. Perhaps the peak of Bot Mania. The peak of Bart Mania came on Thanksgiving, nineteen ninety, when Bart made his debut as a giant helium-filled balloon at the annual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. The Bart Balloon became a permanent picture in the parade, and as of the time of writing, has appeared at every Macy's Day Parade since. The balloon was even referenced in the Season 2 episode Bot versus Thanksgiving. Wait a minute, who's that? Underdog, don't you know anything?
1: Well, I know it wouldn't hurt him to use some cartoons made in the last 50 years.
3: Don, this is a tradition. If you start building a balloon for every flash-in-a-pan cartoon character, you'll turn the parade into a farce.
0: By the end of the second season, the relationship between Matt Groening and Sam Simon had become a strained and particularly contentious one. According to writer and self-described Simpsons historian, John Otford, who'd written in his book, The Simpsons, an uncensored, unauthorized history, Sam Simon had grown to resent the media attention and the praise that Matt Groening had received. In a schoolyard kind of way, Simon felt that he was the one who deserved the credit for the success of The Simpsons, and that Matt Groening's influence was minimal. Of course, Matt Groening literally created The Simpsons, but whatever. Seb Simon, however, was not just at odds with Matt Groening. He also found himself in frequent arguments with production company Gracie Films, and with another fellow executive producer, James L. Brooks. Simon would leave the Simpsons South in 1993, negotiating a deal on his way out, which would see him receive a share of the show's annual revenue in perpetuity, as well as an executive producer's credits. He pretty much left all influence on the simpsons at the end of season two however taking over as showrunners for season three were el jean and mike reese two young men who had written for the simpsons since the show had began season three and what is often considered the golden age of the simpsons commenced in grand fashion with the popular episode, Stark Raving Dad, which guest starred Michael Jackson, appearing under a pseudonym. In this episode, Bart causes a laundry accident, which forces Homer to wear a freshly dyed pink shirt to work. This very quickly catches the attention of Mr. Burns, who suspects Homer to be a, quote, free-thinking anarchist. And so, after a bit of fuckery, Homer is sent to a mental institution, where he would be sharing a room with a large, bald man calling himself Michael Jackson. Skipping forward, Homer is declared sane, and as it turns out, The alleged Michael Jackson is only in the mental home voluntarily, so Homer invites him to stay with his family for a little while. The season 3 premiere ends with one of the most memorable scenes in all of Classic Simpsons, as Bart, along with the man calling himself Michael Jackson, sing Lisa a song that they'd written for her birthday. Michael Jackson then reveals himself to actually be Leon Komkowski, a bricklayer from New Jersey. He goes on to explain that he had fought with anger issues for most of his life, and only ever found happiness in the joy that imitating Michael Jackson would bring to others. He walks towards the rising sun as the credits roll. Stark Raving Dad received widespread acclaim following its initial airing, and the show running team of Jean and Weiss were quickly recognized as the men to lead The Simpsons to greater heights.
3: We understand, Homer. After all, we are from the land of chocolate. Mmm, the land of chocolate. La, 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 la. Mr. Simpson. La, 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 la. Mr. Simpson. Huh? Oh, I'm sorry. We were talking about chocolate? That was ten minutes ago.
0: Under the leadership of Gene and Weiss, more focus began to be placed on Homer Simpson. While little more than a parody of sitcom Dad's in the first two seasons, season three afforded Homer more personality becoming characterized by his simple, naive nature, love of food and beer, as well as his kind heart, A handful of season three episodes explored Homer's developing personality, such as Homer Defined, Flaming Moe's, and the heartwarming flashback episode, I Married Marge. The show's success continued into 1993, with season four, which is my favorite season of The Simpsons. Season four was when The Simpsons started to get a little more ridiculous with its plots, as the entire town of Springfield is swindled into investing in a monorail, or Homer and Barney having competing plowing businesses. And it all climaxes in an episode where Krusty the Clown's show is cancelled. To a degree, the show's writers seem self-aware of the growing grandiosity of the Simpsons, and I believe that you can see a reflection of that in the episode Itchy and Scratchy the Movie. At the end of season four, several of the show's original writers left the Simpsons staff to seek outside opportunities, as did the acclaimed showrunners Al Jean and Mike Weiss who went on to create their own animated sitcom, The Critic. It was also at this time that Sam Simon finalized his previously discussed negotiations and had officially left the Simpsons staff himself. For the fifth and sixth season, the new Simpsons showrunner would be one David Merkin. Merkin was a polarizing figure among Simpsons staff, though his era of The Simpsons is often praised by fans and critics alike. Merkin's style of leadership involved conducting writing sessions in one room, as opposed to working in divided teams, which was the norm for The Simpsons' writers. His vision for The Simpsons was self-described as story-oriented, and with character and emotional focus while keeping it surreal and weird. It was during the David Merkin years that Homer supplanted Bart as the most popular and main character of The Simpsons. While we'd see our deepest dives yet into side characters, like Apu and Principal Skinner. So while season five, which, side note, is my second favourite season was and continues to be loved by audiences, there were certain members of Simpsons staff that had issues with new showrunner David Merkin, one of which, Simpsons creator, Matt Groening.
1: Get out of my office!
0: (laughs) Matt Groening was vocal in his criticisms of David Merkin. In particular, Groening disliked the idea Of the episode Deep Space Homer, where Homer quite literally goes into space. Grating felt that sending Homer Simpson to space was too large of a concept, fearing that it would leave writers with nowhere to go following this episode. Speaking of The Simpsons writers, some of them also had their grievances with David Merkin, specifically his style of humor. The Mercaneers saw a departure from the realistic comedy that had come to define The Simpsons over its first few years, as episodes became increasingly loaded with gags and surrealist humour. Though despite internal conflict, and the shitloads of it yet to come, The Simpsons Season 6 was a roaring success. Equally as popular and acclaimed by fans as was Season 5. Season 6 is to date the highest-rated season of The Simpsons by all metrics. And there are two episodes in particular that I would like to discuss. First off, the 18th episode of the season, A Star is Burns, otherwise known as the Film Festival episode. Or... The original crossover. Or, if you prefer, the episode that gave us this tremendous gag.
1: Hans Molman Productions presents Man Getting Hit by Football. <laughs>
0: A Star is Burns first ad on March 5th, 1995. Of course on the fox network in the episode the town of springfield hosts a film festival inviting famed film critic jay sherman to be a judge on the committee that will choose the best film of the festival jay sherman who is a parody of real world critics mostly gene siskel is actually the star of the aforementioned series the critic created by former simpson showrunners Al Jean and Mike Weiss. This is a crossover episode originally pitched by James L. Brooks, who was an executive producer for both programs. Matt Greening, however, has heavily criticized a Star's bands. He attempted to have the episode pulled, feeling that it only served as an advertisement for the critic. In Greening's defense, a Star is was, indeed, more or less a half-hour commercial. Though despite this, it's still a very good episode. You could fool somebody into believing that Jay Sherman was just a one-off character in The Simpsons. The critic isn't very good anyway, my opinion. Matt Groening's attempt to have A Star is pulled was unsuccessful, So he demanded his name be removed from the episode's credits, and he chose to go public with his concerns, where he spoke critically of James L. Brooks for the first time in a decades long professional relationship.
1: That's odd. Where's Homer, and Bart, and Lisa, and Grandpa? After all these years, things are finally starting to go my way. <laughs> I feel like celebrating. I... Oh, it's you. What are you so happy about? <gasps> I see. Well, I think you'd better drop it. I said drop it! <laughs> Get your hands off! <laughs> Where is everybody? Hey, Mia. Are you okay? won't... dignify that... with response. <clears throat> Mr. Burns has been shot. Just a minute! This isn't Mr. Burns at all! It's a mask!
0: Wait, it is Burns. <laughs> His wrinkly skin looks like a mask.
1: I don't think we'll ever know who did this. Everyone in town's a suspect. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I couldn't possibly solve this mystery. Can you?
0: The finale of season six is often considered one of the greatest episodes of the Simpsons' golden age. The concept came from Matt Groening, who envisioned a two-part episode where Mr. Burns would be shot, and he realized that climaxing part one with a who-done-it style mystery could make for an excellent publicity stunts. Who Shot Mr. Burton's part one aired as the season six finale on May 21st, 1995. The episode intentionally builds Homer Simpson as the most obvious culprit, though he is a red herring. Writers had left clues hinting at the identity of the true shooter, and over the season break, Fox held a contest where fans would guess who'd done it. Nobody got it. And, I mean, fuck, who could, right? (laughs) Season 7 debuted on September 17th with part two of Who Shot Mr. Burns. And the second part was just as good, if not better, than the first. We learn early that Homer is innocent, but he is nonetheless suspected of the crime, we get tons of fake-outs as we learn more about the incident. The episode interestingly switches between the point of views of Homer, Lisa, Mr. Smithers, and Chief Wiggum. And yes, Mr. Burns is still alive. In fact, it's old Burnsy that drops the revelation. He reveals who really shot him on that night. <laughs>
3: SHOT
1: YOU! Before. Shot? (laughs) By you, I'm afraid not, my primitive friend. Your kind is neither the cranial capacity nor the opposable digits to
0: operate a firearm. The one who shot me was...
1: (laughs) Maggie Simpson!
0: It was the baby. Maggie Simpson. We should have known. The premiere of Season 7 was also the end of David Merkin's reign as The Simpsons' showrunner. Merkin would remain on board as an advisor, and replacing him as co-showrunners would be the duo of Bill Oakley and Joshua Weinstein, two writers who were suggested by David Merkin himself. So begins the Oakley and Weinstein years, the final seasons of The Simpsons' golden
3: Age. well Seymour I made it despite your directions ah yeah, Superintendent Chalmers welcome I hope you're prepared for an unforgettable
0: luncheon yeah. Oakley and Weinstein have been praised by Simpsons fans writers critics basically everybody their approach to season seven and eight was primarily based on season three nostalgia where David Merkin took the series to some ridiculous new places, the Oakley and Weinstein years, in contrast, brought the Simpsons back to reality. Their goal as showrunners was to revisit a time when the Simpsons was a reflection of the modern American family and to put more focus on Springfield and the people who lived in it. Seasons seven and eight were kind of a self-indulgent celebration of The Simpsons itself. And, you know, when something is as great as classic Simpsons was, that's a good thing. I will gladly take two years of self-indulgence. But it wasn't also formulaic. Oakley and Weinstein also wanted to push the envelope at least a few times each season. And a great example of that is the anthology episode, 22 Short Films About Springfield. They'd also enact some rare permanent change to a show that had been exclusively status quo up to that point. In an episode that actually features Sir Paul McCartney from The Beatles, Lisa Becomes a Vegetarian. The episode is cleverly titled, Lisa the Vegetarian. And this is actually, as stated, a permanent change to Lisa's character. She will remain a vegetarian for the rest of the series. Another permanent change is the divorce of Luann and Kirk Van Houten, otherwise known as Milhouse's parents. It was during the Oakley and Weinstein years that The Simpsons hit its first major milestone. On February 9th, 1997, upon the airing of the 167th episode, The Simpsons surpassed The Flintstones as the longest-running primetime animated series in United States history. The episode in question, Season 8, Episode 14, was entitled The Itchy and Scratchy and Poochy Show, and it is a meta-commentary on the longevity of a television series, being creatively stifled, all of that. In an attempt to boost ratings, the itchy and scratchy show introduces a third anthropomorphic animal character, Poochie the dog, and he is voiced by none other than Homer Simpson. The audience does not respond well to Poochie, and he is quickly cut from the show.
1: I have to go now. My planet needs me.
0: Seasons 7 and 8 of The Simpsons continued the trend of earning widespread acclaim. The popularity of the show was without parallel, and at this point even its harshest critics had come to appreciate The Simpsons for what it was. And what it was was a program that had become an international media empire. A far cry from the crude sketches on the Tracy Ullman show all of those years ago. By 1997, The Simpsons was an absolute fucking monster. So, it was as good as time as any for Bill Oakley and Joshua Weinstein to step down as showrunners. With the end of season 8... So came the end of the revered Oakley and Weinstein era. In their own words, they did not want to break the show. What was meant by that oddly cryptic phrasing is that Oakley and Weinstein felt the remaining as showrunners for more than two years would cause the Simpsons to become associated with their particular vision they believed that cycling new showrunners in and out every few seasons was necessary to keep a long-running show like The Simpsons fresh, somewhat ominous with the benefit of hindsight. Entering its ninth season, The Simpsons would have a new showrunner and executive producer. His name was Mike Scully, and under his leadership, the golden age of the Simpsons came to its end. John Orved, Simpsons historian, has described Scully as the man at the helm when the ship turned towards the iceberg. And that is a wrap for this week, my friends. Oh my god, what an exhausting episode. So much effort. My voice is breaking. Ugh. The thank you, all the same, for being along with me for it. And if you were not interested by The Simpsons, I hope at least I provided some kind of entertainment as my voice slowly degraded over the course of this episode. This is only part one of our dive into the Simpsons. Next week will be part two. Can we answer the question, "What the fuck happens"? That will be only seven days from now, my lovely people. The Simpsons part two. What the fuck happens? I appreciate all of you who were here with me this week and I really hope that you'll be back for part two of our journey until then have a wonderful week eat some chocolate or you know whatever you like frankly I don't care just eat something yummy anyway I'm out of here have to rest my advice this has been Cassidy I love you guys bye
1: We are shit! So we're told The people who are the people that you've ever seen! We write songs! No one likes! Except for people who get us drunk as us! That's not enough!
0: Famed date rapist Bill Cosby had long time... <laughs> Actually gonna say that Famed date, rape. <laughs> okay? All right, <laughs> let's do another take. Oh my god, I can't believe I'm saying that. Fame date rapist Bill Connor. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> Fame date rape, that's awful. What? <laughs> Oh my god. Okay, let's do another. T- <laughs> fame date rapist Bill Cosby had long time been considered America's so called TV dad. <laughs> I need to fix my lies. Laughing, fuck me off. God damn it. God damn it. <laughs> A film festival inviting fame date rapist Jay Sh- Oh my god. <laughs> I can't believe I did that. <laughs> Get it out of your head, dumb bitch. Oh my god.
1: I what you will. Say what you love. Your death is not. No, my death.